you ever signed up for something and uh, you had imagined, you had thought, you had uh, this idea of what it was going to cost, what was required or requested of you in order to fulfill this obligation, this responsibility, only to discover that after you began to do what you committed to do, that there was a lot more than what you had imagined, that what you had anticipated, that what you were maybe willing to commit. Ever learned that? Ever happened to you at any time in your life? I remember when I was a child, I imagined myself playing basketball for the high school basketball team, and I'm pretty tall, I guess. And uh, so the basketball coach obviously came and recruited me in the ninth grade, and he wanted to know if I was ready and willing to play basketball in high school. And I said, sure, who doesn't like to play basketball? After the first practice, I realized there was a lot more involved than just hanging out playing basketball like three on three in a, you know, a little co- competitive game. There's, there's running and, and sweating and shooting endlessly for hours upon hours in order to get that perfect shot. Uh, you know, it, it involved a lot more than I had imagined, I had ever dreamed, had ever thought about. I remember when uh, I fell in love with Patty and it was almost 38 years ago, I thought I knew what love was all about. 37 years later, I realized that I really didn't know what love was all about. But I remember imagining, I remember thinking that as I would walk that aisle and commit my life to Patty, that I had everything down that was necessary to be married. I mean, I had thought through all that, and I knew what marriage was all about. I mean, I was, you know, a whole 22 years old, and I knew what marriage was was all about. And then after we walked out the aisle, and, you know, after we came back from our one night on honeymoon, because that's all the money I had to afford... You know, young adults today go on cruises and all kinds of stuff, but uh, ours was one night at the Holiday Inn. Uh, Anyway, I began to realize as I began to live day-to-day with someone else that there was a lot more required of me in order to invest in a relationship with a spouse. And over the years, there's been more sacrifice, more surrender, more self-denial, more service, and more of everything than I had ever imagined almost 37 years ago when I committed my life to Patty. And let me just say, so that I don't get in trouble, it's been worth it all these years. But I didn't have an idea what marriage was like. I thought I did. But in trying to live out that reality, there was a lot more than I had ever imagined. And then there came children. It finally came time for the day for us to sit down and I'll say, it's time for children. And our first son is named Matthew because that name is significant. It means gift of God. I'll let you figure that out. But when we heard that we were going to become parents, I had imagined, I had dreamt, I had thought about, I knew what it meant to be a father until the day we brought Matthew home. All the sacrifice and the surrender and the self-denial All that's required to be a parent was unimaginable until you become one. And then you recognize and realize the commitment and the cost that is required in order to be a parent. By the way, it never stops. I have three and the oldest is 35. You still are a parent for the rest of your life. Then there was a time I sort of brushed back off the memories of my mind and I remember when I committed my life to Jesus. You remember when you committed your life to Christ? You had an idea, you had an imagination, you had thoughts in regard to what was going to be required of you. I mean, you didn't know everything, but you knew that you needed 
a savior because you were a sinner and you place your faith and trust in Jesus as your savior and you committed as best you know how to make him the leader, the Lord of your life. But the reality is when you made that decision, no matter how much imagination you could have had, there was no way in the world that you could have prepared yourself for what you were about to do in the journey or the process of discovering what it means to be a disciple. Because as you grow in your understanding and your commitment to Christ, he requires, he requests, he, he demands more of us than we could have ever imagined that first time, that first moment when we dedicate and commit our lives to Jesus. Remember? You've grown in your understanding and you've finally realize that in committing and dedicating yourself to the Lordship of Christ, there's a lot more that is demanded of you, that is required of you, that he requests of you than what you could have possibly imagined on that first day of receiving Jesus and committing to his Lordship and his leadership. And guess what? It's not over because it's a lifelong journey. And until you breathe your last breath in this life, he will continually, constantly cause you to rethink your commitment to him and to renew that commitment and to challenge you to new heights, new depths, and new commitments. You never reach a state of perfection. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. He's not talking about me because I'm there. I can imagine the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. We've come to that place where they have finally are being sat down by Jesus and he's explaining to them the commitment they made way back when, when he handpicked them one by one and invited them to follow him. They had, they had no imagination. They had no idea. They had no way of understanding what this commitment meant. All they knew that Christ was calling, they felt a need to respond. They stood up from where they were, left their old life, and committed to follow him. And on this journey so far through Matthew 10, they have been watching Jesus do everything. They have basically been spectators who have been on the bench watching Jesus do all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the ministry, all of the healing and fulfilling the mission. It's finally until Matthew chapter 9 at the end of the text where Jesus addresses his disciples and he encourages them to start praying. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in my field that is ripe for the picking. And after he commissioned them to pray, he then is going to charge them with the responsibility now to go themselves. He's asking them to be missionaries with a message on a mission into the mission field. He's going to send them out. And I can imagine the disciples at this particular point are sort of thinking, you know, I didn't really know the full scope of what it meant to follow Jesus. But now I'm beginning to understand what that commitment meant and where he is wanting to take me in this journey of discipleship. And possibly you today have reached a stage or a point in your life where you could have never imagined where God was going to take you. And you have made great strides in your relationship to him. But I'm here to tell you that today, like the disciples, he's wanting us to rethink our commitment, the cost of discipleship, and to recognize and realize we're not where we are going to remain for very long, for he's sending us out. He's wanting us to progress. He's wanting us to move from where we are to a greater level of commitment than we have ever been before. This life called the disciple's life is not a stagnant, stale, sitting still life. You're either moving forward or you're regressing backwards. You never stand still very long. 
And if you stand still too long, you get stagnant, you get stale, and you become sour. Know anybody like that? But if you don't, you're probably that person. And so here we find the disciples are being challenged. After he commissions them to go, he says, as you're going, we've seen this in our study, you're going to be experience opposition, there's going to be oppression, there's going to be persecution, it's going to happen, and it's going to come from most unlikely sources. Even family members are going to turn against family members, and some of you are going to die for the cause of Christ on mission for with me. Maybe not now, but after he ascends and they later go on without him, many, if not most, of these disciples are going to physically die for Christ because of the oppression and the opposition and the persecution that Jesus received, they too will receive. That's why this whole series is Lead Like Jesus, because he's calling us to lead out into the mission field like him, willing to die as he died. And he says, don't be controlled by fear. Remember, we talked about this last week. Don't let fear be the primary factor that makes you make your decisions or determines your choices because there will come times in your stand for me, in your proclamation of me, in your defense of me, in your faith, where you are going to be so persecuted and so oppressed and so afraid that if you're not careful, you'll let fear motivate you and minimalize what I want to do through you and in you. Today now, he's saying to the disciples, I, I want to make sure that as you go out, that there's a, there's a core value in regard to your discipleship to me. You see, if we're going to go out as Christ is calling them to go out into the harvest that he's already prepared for us to reap and to sow and to receive, then we must understand that in the core, at the depths of our heart, there is a foundation that Jesus is laying to make sure that as they go out, that this core, this foundation is solid, that they fully understand what it means to be a Christ follower. It's kind of like football season is about to start, and the first day of practice, the coach stands up and said, guys, this is a football. <laughs> okay? He's saying, guys, as you're being sent out, on the first day that you're going out, I want to be clear, and I want to call you out to a radical discipleship at your core, at your foundation that will anchor and propel you into the journey that I'm about to send you. And, and, and I think that probably most of us today need to rethink discipleship. And he's, he's challenging them. He's, he says in the passage, he says, do not think. You see, I think they had an understanding of what they thought discipleship was about, but Jesus wants to be specifically clear about what a disciple is. And there are many today who have reached an understanding that is not clear in the thinking of Jesus. For if our thoughts are not Jesus' thoughts in regard to what a disciple is, then it's us who need to change, not him. And we live in an age of convenience. We live in an age of consumerism. We don't really live in an age of discipleship. And Jesus is wanting them to, at their core, to rethink what their commitment is to him as a disciple. And he clearly lays out five things that he wants to challenge them in regard to what it means to follow Jesus. Let's look at them. Number one, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means division. It means division. 
He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. You're not thinking correctly. You think that I came to bring peace on earth. And wait a minute, what, did, what happened when the angels visited the shepherds and, and they said, you know, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Did not Jesus come to establish and to give peace? In some regards, he did. He came to establish peace between us and God. Romans 3.23 says that we've all sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wage of that sin is death. But John 3.16 says for all, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus did come to reconcile us in our relationship with God the Father through faith in his atoning death on the cross. Meaning that Jesus, when he died on the cross, took upon himself the sins of those who would trust him as their savior. He died in their place, taking upon him their punishment dying in their place, so that through faith in him, now their relationship with God can be sealed through that sacrifice. Now we have a right relationship with God. Now through Jesus and his death on the cross, we have peace with God. That is true. And those of us who are in Christ now have a right relationship with God, and our relationship is no longer one of sin and hostility and strife and wrath, but it's one of grace and mercy and peace. But yet Jesus didn't say, I didn't come to establish peace. Change your thinking here. I didn't come to establish peace between you and God. But he said, I did not come to bring peace on or to the earth. You see, I'm convinced the disciples were a little bit confused maybe. Because when Jesus came to fulfill his mission, there were many who believed that Jesus was going to bring peace to Israel, peace to Judah that he was going to liberate them. The Messiah was going to liberate them from Rome and establish a kingdom, a throne in which he would reign and he would rule and there would be peace in Judah, peace from their enemies called Rome and they would be free to ro- rule themselves and there would be peace. The disciples many times said, you know, when you establish your kingdom, Jesus, let me be the one on your right and your left. They, they had this idea that there was going to be peace on earth and Jesus said, no, guys, I want you to rethink this peace thing. He says, I have not come, here's my mission, to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Interesting that he describes what he came to do as a sword. What does a sword do? A sword cuts. A sword divides. Like a knife you have in your kitchen, use it to sever two things. Basically, what Jesus came to do is to create two different worlds in one world. It's that simple. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except, except what? By me or through me. There is no way to God, there is no way to heaven except through Jesus. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man, no woman, no child, no person comes to the Father except through me. There is no salvation in any other except through me. That divides. There are two worlds that we live in, the believing world and the unbelieving world. And anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is on the unbelieving world. There are two worlds. And I thought about it. I I loved to play soccer when I was in high school and college. There are two teams on a soccer field. There are two teams in the world that we live in today. 
those who believe in Jesus and those who don't believe in Jesus. And anyone that doesn't claim Jesus as the only way, the truth and the life, is not a part of our world. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world. There's a separation. There is a division. There is a, a, a recruitment to the team, to the side, or to the world of Jesus that's believing that is contradictory and totally opposed to the world that is now unbelieving. And that unbelieving world is completely now hostile toward the believing world. And I want us to understand this because I know some of us have a tendency to be a little bit militant in our faith, that the hostility and the oppression and suppression, the persecution is not coming from those who believe in Jesus against those who are unbelievers, but it's those who are unbelievers against those who are believers. We are messengers of peace, but in our message, it will cause conflict and division in the world in which we live. There's division. Following Jesus means there's a separation from this world into his world. There's a division. You can't live in both worlds. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And when you make a decision to serve the Lord, you are no longer in this world. You now have been set apart into a different world, a different life that's no longer the old. It brings division. Notice what happens in that divisiveness or that division that the sword brings. Notice following Jesus not only brings division, but it also brings detachment. Notice the next verse in verse 35. For I have come, my mission is this. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. There's a radical call not only to be set apart from the world, but a radical call to make him the priority of our lives. And at some point, that's going to require that we become somewhat detached from our biological family. He said, I've come as a sword to bring division, and that division is going to affect even your biological family. According to the Jewish tradition, when Jesus was teaching this passage to those who were listening, especially his disciples, there was no greater relationship between a son and his father. For the father was the head of the household, and for a son or a daughter to to be against the father was completely unheard of. It was, it was a, a social faux pas that was unacceptable to the Jewish community and, and to their culture. And Jesus is saying, it's going to set a son against his father. It's going to divide son and father. It's not only going to do that, but it's going to divide a mother from her daughter. I don't know about you, when mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Can I get an amen to that, guys? And I don't know about you, but when women start to fight in the home, it, it gets pretty bad. Nobody cares if dad's happy or not. Right, guys? Yeah. Come on. We're all going to go out to lunch together because we're not going to have anything to eat when we get home. But other than that, meet me in the back and we'll go out together. But, but here's the deal. It's going to divide moms and, and daughters. It's going to divide. this. Now, now the Jewish community was somewhat of a matriarch community, and, and, and the mothers, you know, they, they, were, they were pretty much in charge. Read. Read the Proverbs about the woman that he describes at the end of his, of his book, the virtuous woman. But it's also going to bring division between mother-in-laws and daughters-in-law. 
When a, when a lady married a man, she was adopted by the son's family. She became a part of the family. And so now she left her family and became a part of his family. That's why the woman normally, today not always, but normally assumes the man's last name. So there's an adoption into the family. Now what Jesus is trying to get, here's the point that he's trying to make here is this. Not just these relationships, the ones going to be affected, but he's putting these out there as an illustration saying that all of our biological relationships are bound and determined to be impacted by your belief in Jesus. For when you step forward and place your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and commit to following him as the leader, the Lord of your life, it will bring division into your family especially between those who are unbelievers because they don't have the worldview that you have. And there's going to be a diametric opposition, a division of the family. So much so, notice he says in the next verse, and a person's enemies will be found where? Will be those in his own household. Your own family members will become your enemies. An enemy here is someone that virtually desires pain, hurt, heartache, toward someone else. An enemy is someone who is against another person and wishes their demise and often works for their demise. It is suggesting here that your family members will eventually become your enemies. This isn't anything new because it's something that we've seen earlier. As we talked about that when the persecution comes, it's going to come even actually within the family unit. And so we go to Matthew chapter 8 in a passage that we already studied. And let me just read it to you. It said, now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. What's he saying? There's a detachment to our family, a priority now where Jesus becomes our priority. He becomes our focus. He becomes our purpose. And there are going to be times when following Jesus is going to mean that in following him, we're going to have to detach ourselves from our families because our families can be pretty influential in how we follow Christ. They can. And it's going to be hard for some of us who believe to live with and to deal with family members who are unbelievers. And they will become hostile because they don't understand. They've not been born again. They've not been renewed by the Spirit of Christ. They don't share your values. And it's going to bring division. And some of you I know, because I've been your pastor almost eight years, have experienced that kind of division in your home. Sometimes it brings divisions between husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and grown children. It'll bring division. And we must learn that our primary, our primary focus and our primary purpose and our main objective is to Jesus first, family second. Notice not only does following Jesus mean division and detachment, but it also means division. It means devotion. I'm sorry, devotion. There's a radical call here to love Christ preeminently, supremely, to love him with all of your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Notice he says in verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The key to interpreting this properly is in those three words, more than me. 
more than me. That's the key. Be careful how you interpret this. The more than me is critical. Because what Jesus is assuming in this passage, he is assuming that biological family members are going to love each other. He's assuming that. You're going to love each other. That's, that's natural for biological families to love each other. And if your family doesn't love each other, that's not natural. Or the home should be a place of unconditional love and acceptance. And so there's, there's an assumption on Jesus' part that you're going to love each other. Jesus is also not saying here that you are no longer to love your family. He's not saying you've got to love me or love them, choose. No, you can love him and love them. He wants you to continue to love them. And he is making the assumption that not only do you love them, but as you love him, you can continue to love them. Never stop loving your family. But he does say here that your love for me should be supreme. It should be preeminent. It should be the first thing. We learn in another passage in Matthew, there was a man who came to Jesus, and he said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So love God first and love your neighbor second. Always put God in the preeminent, prominent position to be so affectionate, so devoted, so in love with him that no love takes precedence over him. You are to love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Always love him first, because if we don't, he says, you are not worthy of me. If I'm not preeminent, if I'm not your number one affection, if I'm not the greatest love of your life, then you are not fit to follow me. You cannot follow me. Because in following me as a disciple, I must be your first love. For if I'm a second love, you're not going to follow me the way that I am desiring you to follow me. You're not going to fulfill the plan and the purpose that I have for your life. For I must be the Number one love. And I, I've seen many teenagers fall in love and wind up letting their love for their boyfriend or their girlfriend take priority of their love for God. I've seen spouses let their love for each other take priority over their love for God. I've seen parents love their children more than they love God. And we must be really careful that we love God first. God must be calling a lot of people today. I remember when my parents surrendered to the call to be missionaries in Brazil. I was seven years old. You know, you never know what your children hear at seven years old. Don't underestimate what they can hear and understand. And I remember as a seven-year-old, almost eight, that my parents were having a discussion with my grandparents, my mother's parents. And my grandparents, my mother's parents, were upset that that she and my father were taking their grandchildren overseas to a distant place called Brazil because they would be robbed of the opportunity to watch their grandchildren grow up. And I thank God that my parents showed us as children that love of God's first over family. And I have known over the years parents who have been upset with God because he didn't do things the way they wanted things to be done for their family or for their children 
You know, it, it is tough living in Wichita with my grandkids in, in Canada and North Carolina and Texas. But I've learned you can't follow your kids. You know why? They'll up and move on you. Yeah. But God's called us to Wichita. And we're happy to be here. I don't want to be anywhere else. In my opinion, this is the best church in Wichita, Kansas. And I'm just happy that God has allowed us to stay here and continues to work through us here. But there, it can be tough to put your love for God first before your family. I've watched my wife cry many times that we've driven off <laughs> from the grandkids, not knowing when we're going to get to see them next. Love God first, but love your family as well. Third, fourthly, it not only demands division, detachment, devotion, but it means denial. Denial. Notice the text in verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I have a mini message inside the big message, so here we go. A radical call to deny oneself. Self is the greatest enemy to the spirit of Christ in your life because self wants what self wants. And it fights to get what it wants. And it doesn't stay dead. You can crucify it, die to it, deny it over and over again. And within a second after you put him to death, he's right back up, screaming in your ear again, demanding its way. It's kind of like that, that two-year-old that, <clears throat> that I heard in Body Life dining hall the other night where... There was a young mother, it was Miss Mattingly, whose child was screaming because he wanted his ice cream. And she said, no, you got to eat your dinner first. And self was saying, I don't want what you want, Mom. I want my ice cream. And the whole group of us in the dining hall heard him screaming. And she just kept right on eating. <laughs> Sorry about that, Tanya. It just kind of came out. It wasn't in my notes. But you should sit in a less obscure place so I can't see you. But self is like that. I mean, most of us are two-year-olds. Who want what we want? And we're like that with God. You know you are, even at 80. Self is stubborn, and we've got to die to self. And he says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That whosoever here is, is a, a person that is that is being driven, it, it, it is placed indiscriminately upon us. Whosoever means that whoever is going to receive the cross, God has a plan, God has a purpose, God has an intention, and he selectively, indiscriminately caused certain individuals at certain times to bear certain crosses. And you may be bearing a cross today. I know a family that is bearing a cross in the loss of their loved one, a senior who passed away this morning. There, there are crosses that we often bear and we carry. And it's indiscriminate, and he selects us indiscriminately, and for a season he will ask us to bear a certain cross, or maybe he may ask you to bear a cross for a lifetime, a cross that no one can see and no one knows about because it's so intimate and so personal that only you and the Lord know, but it is indiscriminate, and whosoever, he says, and you may be that whosoever today, is carrying a cross, and whosoever, he says, does not take, that's interesting, that does not pick it up, 
Whoever does not pick it up, whoever refuses to carry it, whoever in, in carrying it decides this load is too heavy, I'm not doing this anymore. He's saying a disciple doesn't do that. A disciple carries their cross. A disciple who indiscriminately, God says, I want you to carry that cross. You say, yes, sir, and you take it. You bear it. You put it upon your shoulders and you carry it willingly, the cross. For whoever does not take up his cross, notice his cross. It's a personal thing, isn't it? It's a cross that, that no one can carry for you. Although there are times I think we sometimes think that we can share our burden or share our load with someone else and they can carry it for us for a while, especially when we reach a point of exhaustion. But that's not reality because that's not going to happen. It's a personal. It is yours and you must carry it. You must take it up. And whoever does not take up his personal cross. The cross was something the disciples were familiar with. They were familiar with the cross. They had seen many times in their lives. A Roman soldier group following behind a man who was carrying his cross on a death march. They had seen this many times over, I'm convinced, and knew that when Jesus talked about taking up your cross in vision, they, they saw in their minds a man surrounded by Roman soldiers walking down a dusty road headed toward the place of execution. And they knew that this man was on his death march, that he would soon reach that destination and he would die a horrible death on a cross. But what they did know as well is that man would never return. He's headed toward a place that will require him. He will never come back to the old life that he once lived. And I'm convinced what Jesus is saying here is that we are to take up our cross, meaning that when we turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus, we are on a death march. We are never to return back to the old life, for we are moving toward a better life. We are to take up our cross. And he says, follow me. It's, it's a progressive death march because you're, you're, you're taking the cross and you're bearing the cross and you're carrying the cross while you're moving. You're not stagnant. You're not sitting down. You're not still. You're following Jesus. So a cross doesn't give you permission to sit, to soak, and to sour, and not to make spiritual progress. Or if you can't make progress carrying your cross, you'll never make progress without the cross. And we must carry the cross following Jesus. And there's a progression about following him as we carry the cross. Because if we don't, we're not fit to be his disciple. I want you to turn with me real quick to this passage in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself was, wasn't willing to do. Jesus was willing to take up his cross. For after he was beaten that night almost to death and sentenced early that morning, he carried his cross until he physically became incapable of doing so, and someone else then carried it the rest of the way. But when he got to the cross, that man wasn't nailed in his place. Jesus was. And notice what happens to Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 36. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Verse 36. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. 
And over his head they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by derided him and wagging their heads and saying, verse 40, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. For if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, verse 42, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus could have come down from the cross. He could have said, I'm not guilty. I don't deserve this. I don't need this. I don't want this. I have suffered enough. I am tired and just boom, I quit. And yet he led all the way to the cross and he's leading us to the cross. And if Jesus who is willing to do this for us, why are we not then willing to do the same for him? He's not asking of us anything that he himself was unwilling to do. And he, if he asks you to, tear, to carry a cross, I guarantee you that your cross is not and cannot ever be compared to the cross that he bore. For he who knew no sin took upon himself our sin and died in our place for sins they did not commit. And the father turned his back on him and he said, it is finished. You think your cross was heavy to bear? His was heavier. And Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he himself isn't willing and wasn't willing to do. And he says that's what his disciples would do. They will carry their cross. They will deny self because self says, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want this anymore. I'm tired. I want out. I quit. Disciples don't quit. They don't walk away. They carry the cross. And then lastly is the word death. Following Jesus finally brings death. Interesting in this passage, it says that the radical call is to die to oneself, to die. And the interesting sort of contrast here in this paradox is in order to live, I must die and if I die, I live. That sounds strange to me. It's kind of an upside-down world because you and I would think that to live, we must choose life. To die means to die. No, to, to die is to live, and to live is to die. And if you choose life, this life, rather than future life, you actually die. Notice what he says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's he saying here? He's saying if you spend all of your life in this temporary life, building up all of the possessions of this, this temporal life that we live in, this, this world that we have, if you've spent all of your effort and all of your energy in this temporary life that we have, you lose eternal life. But if you will choose to invest in the eternal life, in the abundant life, you will find life. The opposite is true that the world wants to teach us that this world is our home and that everything in this world is about this world and after this life, after this world, there is nothing else. And if you've ever been to a funeral where there is nothing beyond the grave, it is the most saddest thing you will ever participate in. 
because they have no hope beyond the grave. But we know that this life isn't all there is, and we invest in the abundant life in this life by dying to Christ so that we might live. But notice he says, whoever loses his life for my sake, be careful that you don't misrepresent that it's for his sake. You are dying in order to follow Christ. And if the journey that he leads you on leads you to death, you willingly embrace it so that you might then live. Reminded of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he had tried everything. And he was still empty and still void. And Jesus said, well, obey the commandments. And he gave him a list of commandments. And in the brassness and the self-righteousness, he said, I've done all those things. Jesus said, you have? Yeah, I have. He said, well, then go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. The man walked away sad. And those that were around Jesus were wondering why. And the passage says in verse 22, Matthew 19, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man invested his life in temporary worldly possessions and was unwilling to give those up for the abundant life and the eternal life that's found through Christ. Because he wasn't willing to die to this world, he could not inherit the abundant or the eternal life that comes through faith in Jesus. I happened to... uh, Spend some time this week with Asenath and the Barton family. Um, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, we probably have about two to three dozen family members gone today because they have a large family in our church. And uh, somebody jokingly told me that everybody's kind of interrelated here. If you're not, you be careful who you talk about because there's a lot of relationships here and you don't know who they are until you've been here eight years. But there's a lot of Bartons in our church. <laughs> And they're great people, but Asenath was an amazing lady. And uh, we have lost uh, a real matriarch spiritually in our church. Has served the Lord faithfully here for a long time, and her family is a product of that. But when you're up in the room and the choice to do radical things that will not prolong your life much and will make your life miserable or just letting God take his course of action and because our days are numbered. She chose to let the Lord determine how long she would live. And it was interesting to see a lady like her who had lived her faith for a long time while she wanted to live. Don't get me wrong, she wanted to live, but she was ready to die. How can you reach that point in your life without faith in Jesus? Because she knew that in dying, she would live. I'm convinced that's how she lived her life in this life. And now she's gone to receive her reward. You want to live? Die. For in dying, we live. God has your days numbered. He knows when you're going to breathe your last breath. There's nothing you need to be afraid of if you know Christ as your Savior, for he is the Lord of your future. Let's serve him faithfully and follow him. Wherever he leads, we will go. Let's pray.